this other way. Are we having, is there something on the PowerPoint? Perfect, okay, thank you. So, a couple of weeks ago, I made a confession to you that I gave in to a temptation and I watched Pride and Prejudice. And, and the worst thing, that you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I felt that wasn't the end of the confession. I had to go a little bit further. It is true, I am a romantic. Oh, you bless my heart. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm not, and guys, all I can say is I'm really sorry, gentlemen, but I buy Helen flowers. I buy her chocolates. We even go out for dinner sometimes. I'm liking this. I'm a romantic. And, uh, you know, I feel that the reason I can admit that I'm a romantic even though I may scoff at the odd rom-com and think, yeah, right, whatever, load of rubbish. <laughs> it's quite good, really. <laughs> Even though I may scoff at that, deep down, I admit I love a good romance story. And the reason is because I think here in the book of Ruth, in fact, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, I can confidently say I am proud to be a romantic because I think God was one first. I think God was one first. I'm not talking about a soppy, cheesy, Valentine's Day, fluffy card romance. I'm talking about the original and the best. Jealous, unrelenting, powerful. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. A romance. So as any good boxed set of series is, um, does say previously on Ruth. We have the first part of Ruth in chapter 1. Naomi is married to Elimelech in Bethlehem. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. And they decide during a famine, that's up and go to Moab, a cursed place, but never mind, they've got some grub. So they go there, and Elimelech dies. Malon and Kilion marry two Moabite girls, um, you know, sacrificed to all gods and everything like that. Not very good. Uh, and then after 10 years, they die, and the women are left destitute. So Naomi says, right, I'm going home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I've heard it's got better over there. Ruth says, I'll go with you paraphrased. And then we go, they come back to Bethlehem, and uh, Bethlehem, it's harvest time for the, the harvest of the barley, and Ruth, according to the, the Levitical laws, can glean because she's impoverished. So she's gleaning in the field, and by chance, she happens upon Boaz's field, and Boaz, who's a near relative, looks after her. And she goes home and tells Naomi about this, and Naomi, for the first time in a long time, sees the hand of God in her life, and has a little bit of hope. And then in chapter 3, it's the end of the harvest season. It's party time. But then Naomi and Ruth realize gleaning time's over as well. We need a more permanent solution to our predicament. And so uh, at night after Boaz the, you know, lies down after being a little bit merry, he's lying down in, in, the, in the gleaning room, and uh, sorry, the threshing room. And Ruth comes up. It must have been the 28th of February because she asks him to marry her. And he says, and she has to put his cloak over her. Will you look after me? Can I come under your protection? Will you be my redeemer? And he says, but there's younger guys. There are fitter guys. Why, you're choosing me? All right then. But like every good rom-com, drama, uh, movie, book, there is an obstacle in the way. There's another man. <laughs> and I feel sorry for him in a way because he's just called Kinsman Redeemer. So for... You know, for, you know, we're going to call him Billy. 
So there's Billy, who is living in Bethlehem, doing his own thing, got a big family, big lands and everything like that. He is the one who's in the way. There's another kinsman redeemer, but Boaz has got a plan. Boaz has got a plan. The kinsman redeemer, the role of Goel, um, Lisa um, expanded on it last week. According to these passages, a kinsman redeemer has to be, must be a blood relative. He must be able to redeem. He must be willing to redeem. So Boaz goes to the, and meets Billy. Well, he's at the town gate, which is the place where lots of transactions and justice is meted out. And people gather there at the town gate for, for public business. And he sees Billy coming along and says, Billy, mate, come here, have a, have a wee chat with me. He's quite cool and casual about it. So he comes across, it's a place of business. Boaz calls together the elders and the witnesses. This is clever. This is getting the people who make the decisions in Bethlehem. They're the ones who arbitrate over judgments. They're the ones who ratify decisions. And he says, in front of these witnesses, I wanted you to know, Billy, that um, it's your opportunity to redeem Naomi's land. She's got some land that belonged to Elimelech. She can't take it back, but actually you can, you can buy it back for her. You can do this to offer to redeem. And the reason we have to understand the importance of land and families to get our grip around this, to understand it. When Israel first took Canaan, they didn't have a whole time you know, going through property magazines, going, I'll fancy that one, I'll lay down a down payment. They were given land to the tribes that were divided to the, um, to the, to the clans, then to sub-clans and then to families. That was always thought that the land belonged to God and they were merely extended tenants with long leases. The land belonged to God. But the families had it, and it was, it was seen it belonged to God, but the land retained, was retained in the family. Hence the importance of families and why we are overwhelmed by the long, long lists that Edwin, you did a cracking job with, wherever you are, of genealogies. They are important, not just because there's a lot of begetting that went on, but it's also because it said something about land ownership and provision, because they were people of the land, they relied upon it. So it's really important. If someone sold land to pay debts, it was only a lease. The law provided for it to be redeemed by Goel. But that's only one aspect of this deal. The other thing was to be the Leverite, the Leverite marriage. This was to preserve the family line. Remember, it's really important for you to preserve your family name. It's all to do with inheritance. It's not just about money. It's about survival. So Billy, according to Deuteronomy 25, needed to provide an heir for Naomi. Legally, it would have been Elimelech's son. It would have carried Elimelech's name, not Billy's. Okay? Even though it was biologically his, his child. And the offer is really attractive to him. You can see Boaz mentioned it. goes, I'll have that. I'll redeem it. Not a problem. To fulfill the role, he acquires the land. He will have to pay out of his own pocket for that land. But then he'd have to have Naomi as part of his family, provide for her, but that's not a big expense. But because of her age, she's not going to need him to fulfill the leveret part. He doesn't need to provide an heir. So therefore, the land that he buys would actually end up being swallowed up by his estate. It's a good deal. I don't know what the Hebrew word is, but it kind of says ka-ching. This is a good deal for me. He knows it. So he agrees. And the dramatic tension as the Ruth and Boaz romance is on a precipice. What's going to happen? 
But you know what's going to happen. But go with me. What's going to happen? Then Boaz has a master stroke. Um, I don't know if you've read or if you've seen The Merchant of Venice. You, you know, I thought I needed to put something of culture in here. <laughs> in the story of Merchant of Venice, there's a, a, a Jewish moneylender called Shylock who loans money to a, a Christian um, merchant who ends up, the, the ships that he buys, they end up you know, crashing or something. You know, they end up losing the money. And according to the law at that time, um, part of the deal was if you can't pay back the money, he, the, the, the Jewish guy Shylock can take a pound of flesh. So it's all around that, and there's lots of romance going on as well. But at the court case, they say, yeah, okay, you can take your pound of flesh, but, but you mustn't drop a single drop of blood. And so if there's anything you take away from this morning, it's a really important thing that the Bible speaks about, and this speaks about this, okay? Really important. Always read the small print. Always read the small print. Because Boaz, and I love it, hopefully you'll get it in, in, in the passage. Boaz recaps the deal. Did you notice that? After he agrees, he goes, okay, let's just recap the details. So um, you'll, you'll take the land and you'll have Naomi and you'll have Ruth and Moabites and you'll have to provide an heir for her. He drops subtly in that there's another woman. And not just that she's Ruth, <laughs> she's a Moabite as well. And you've got to provide an heir. All you can imagine the scene when he goes, yeah, sure. What? I've got to do, well, hold on a second now. That wasn't part of the deal. Because yes, it is part of the deal. He realizes, Billy realizes he would have to pay for the land out of his own pocket, pay for the upkeep of Naomi and of Ruth, provide an heir for her, and there's no guarantee that it would be a male because that's the only way an heir would happen. It's the law back then. So he could end up with quite a few more daughters and then a son, have to provide for all of them out of his own pocket. And then at the end of the day, the land will go to Ruth's son and not his family. So he is going to be completely out of pocket and it'll be eating into his estate and his family's wealth. And so he's in a really tricky situation because it is shameful. Publicly, remember, Boaz is a bit of a genius wheeler dealer here. He says, in front of these witnesses, will you redeem it? Yes, I will redeem it. He's got to think, am I going to go back in my word? Because if, he's not, if he does not remain faithful to fulfill his duty, it is shameful on him. And so Boaz rescues the situation for Billy as well. And if we could have it in the Hebrew, he bit his hand off. That's what Billy did. Yes, you can have that deal because you get me out of a really sticky situation. But what if he'd said, well, that's fine, I can do that. What if he'd said, yes, Naomi and Ruth would have gone into his family, but they would have been a burden and an unwanted addition. They would have been the least in the household. There would have been jealousy in them amongst the rest of the family and bitterness about the fact that they're losing out. There was a sense of threat and there would be no Boaz relationship and therefore there'd be no Obed and there'd be no David. And if you think of a cause and effect eventually, Apparently, there'd be no Jesus. This is not just a romantic little story. This is pivotal. Do you see that? This situation, this moment is pivotal. And so in verse 6, the kinsman redeemer says, no. First of all, he was really happy with the deal. Then he gets the news about Ruth, and that changes. (laughs) 
And he hands over the sandal, which in front of the witnesses, it says that the land upon which this shoe would have been walking is now yours. You are now the kinsman redeemer, handing it symbolically over to him. And in front of the witnesses, Boaz confirms the transactions and the elders agree. And it all sounds a little bit primitive, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit barbaric, misogynist, and sexist, doesn't it? No. <laughs> we can apply for it to become law if you want. But, um, but remember, this is incredibly positive in these days. When a woman had no rights of land or ownership of her own, no provision, especially if you were a widow without children, this is provided in order to look after those who couldn't look after themselves. But essentially, Billy, the kinsman redeemer, when he gets the whole information about Naomi and Ruth, when he hears and reads the small print, he says this, sorry, you're not worth it. You're not worth the hassle. It would cost me too much to be kinsman redeemer. I'm sorry, but just frankly, Ruth, Naomi, you're not worth it. Thankfully, they're not here in this situation to hear this. But Boaz says, you are worth it. You are worth me paying out of my pocket and paying expense to get you into this family. And even more than just carrying out the requirements of the law, Boaz makes Ruth his wife. They conceive a child, Obed. He brings Naomi into the family. She didn't have status. Now she does have status. And those who were labeled not worth it are made worth it. Naomi, the runaway, the dead husband and sons, destitute, afflicted and hopeless. She was thought to be worthless. Ruth was a pagan foreigner. She was a widow. She was childless, remember? Ten years of marriage to Malon and no child. That would have been strange in those days. So therefore, she's worthless as well. Even Boaz, unmarried, childless. Perhaps the reason people didn't want to get associated with him because his mum was a foreign prostitute. You might have heard of her. Her name was Rahab. Look it up. His mum was married to Salmon. And she was a prostitute from Jericho. He was worthless as well. He was shocked that, that Ruth would go, yeah, I pick you. He went, oh, really? Me? <laughs> worthless. It's a beautiful romance though, isn't it? Across the board. It's a sweeping epic of romantic proportions that could squeeze a tear from the hardest of hearts. And if you're not crying by now, you must have a hard heart. <laughs> Thank you. But we do wrong to write it off as a simple romantic story of how God can make everything all right again. Because within this, it's not just a romance, but God's romance. Within this story is a bigger story. Within this love, there's a bigger love on display. I said I'm not ashamed to be a romantic because I think God was one first. I'm not talking about flowers and chocolates and candlelit dinners. I think God is the author and perfect demonstrator of romance, of true love. Our idea of love, that romantic beauty that we see in those rom-coms or at Valentine's Day or every day of our lives, is actually a pale reflection of the original love which is birthed in the heart and being of God. A pale reflection. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but there's one word which occurs in this, in this book. It permeates it. In fact, it permeates the entirety of the Old Testament and in other ways in the New Testament as well. And it's this Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed, and, and it means covenant loyalty. 
translated as love and mercy. It doesn't sound that romantic. You know, at this time of year, um, you know, people maybe watch that movie Love Actually. Have you seen Love Actually? A lot, a lot of people really like that. I don't think it would have done as well in the cinema if it had been called Covenantal Loyalty Actually. <laughs> I don't think it would have brought the punters in, do you? Doesn't sound very romantic, very exciting. Here is what covenant loyalty means. It's the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of Father God for you. That sounds a bit good, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Vine's Bible Dictionary says this. The entire history of God's covenant relationship with Israel and indeed with us can be summarized in the term hesed, covenant loyalty. And we have a taste of covenant loyalty in the marriage ceremony. A marriage ceremony where promises are made to be faithful. And when we go through the marriage prep course, when Helen and I first got married and we looked at our vows, we were amazed that you promise to love, not to feel love, not to just supply with candlelit dinners and everything like that. You promise to act on something. You promise to love. It speaks of loyalty beyond the, the chocolates and flowers, about holding hands when devastating news has just hit, about a tender look between a, between a husband and wife that belies a depth of knowledge of intimacy that says, I know who you are and you know who I am. It talks about a connection. It talks about becoming one flesh, echad, a unity, a mingling of souls. And there's a difference between contract and covenant. A contract says, I will if you will. And that was Billy, the kinsman redeemer situation. I will take, I will buy this land if I can keep it. If you will this, I will do that. That's a contract. I will if you will. That's not how God deals with it, but it's often how we deal with God. A covenant is, I will. I will. God says, regardless of what you do, I'll remain faithful. I will. It's funny that when Moses says, what's your name? And he says, Yahweh. And we say it's I am. It also means I will. I was, I am, I will. I will. No ifs, no buts, no maybes, no dependings on. And the very start of God's story with Israel and indeed with us and humanity, God says, I will be your God. And he laments over Israel and their transgressions and their unfaithfulness. In fact, in Hosea, it talks about in practical terms, Hosea marrying a wayward woman. And she breaks his heart again and again and again. But Hosea, in that passage, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in hesed, in love, in compassion. I will be faithful even if you are not. God cries out from the pages of Scripture and from Ruth. You are worth it. I am your God. You are mine. You are not forgotten. I will love you faithfully, steadfastly, loyally, eternally, no matter how far away you may feel you are, no matter how adrift you may be, regardless of how you or others think you aren't worth it, I will love you. Um, there's a book called Last of the Mohicans. There's a movie made of it as well. And there's a scene where Hawkeye, a guy called Nathaniel, and his, um, his love, Cora, have to be separated for their own safety. 
He has to leave her to be kind of captured by the, by the um, enemy. And he says to her these words, it's amazing drama. If I could put it on the screen, it's just too dark, you won't see it. He says, no matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you. In the midst of the Bible, in the midst of the Old Testament, there's a little book called Ruth. And in the middle of the book of Ruth, in chapter 3, verse 18, there's a throwaway phrase that Naomi gives to Ruth. And you know what? I think it's one of the most central truths of the entirety of Scripture. In this little hidden away verse that says this, He will not rest until the matter is settled. He will not rest until the matter is settled. We think that's Boaz. Maybe it's something about God. He will not rest until the matter is dealt with, is done, is finished. And then we get transported to about 30 AD and a man on a cross whose final words are, it is, it is done. The matter is settled. It's no longer just a nice, cute, romantic story, is it? We see God's romance. He will not settle until the matter is done with. You are worth it. In Psalm 139, it says, You can go to the heights or the depths, no matter what, I am there. You cannot escape my love. At the 915, we sang an amazing hymn, O love that will not let me go. And that's the love that is poured out to you and me. And here is the key verse. He will not rest until it is settled. Boaz says you are worth it. He's, Boaz satisfied the law with an act of love. Does that sound familiar? The law being satisfied by an act of love? I hope it does. Hesed, covenant loyalty, love, grace is costly. It cost Boaz. It wasn't cheap. And he could be being absolutely conned. Ruth and Naomi could take the money and flee. And he would have looked like a fool. But he risked because he loved. There was a story of a young boy who built a wooden boat. He spent hours over this boat. As he put bits of wood together, he glued them carefully, he made mistakes, but then redid them as he painted it carefully, as he stitched together the sails and then threaded through the, the, the string and the loops and then hoisted the sails, varnished it, and then there it was, his completed wooden boat that he loved and treasured because he spent hours and poured himself into it. And then the great moment, he goes to the nearby lake, the big lake, and he goes onto the, the lakeside and takes his wooden boat and he puts it out into the lake and it blows off and it's majestic and it's good. He says, that's good, that is. And then a, a gust of wind comes up and blows him a bit further away and he goes, oh, 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 I need to, and he starts wading out and then it gets just a bit too deep and the wind blows a bit more and he can see his beloved wooden boat sailing off into the distance and, and eventually he keeps on looking, the sun's starting to set and he can't see the boat anymore, it's gone. So he runs around the side of the lake and it, he can't see it. Has it gone to the side? He goes around the entire lake, can't find it. What's happened to his precious wooden boat? He goes there every day looking for it. He can't find it. He walks around, has posters put up and says, has anyone seen my wooden boat? Until one day, a long day, long time afterwards, he's walking around town and he sees a charity shop and in the window of a charity shop is a wooden boat. It's his wooden boat. His heart leaps. So he goes in and says, mister, that's my wooden boat. I made it. And he went, can you prove it? 
no, but I, I made that boat. And he says, sorry, it's, it says 20 pounds. You'll have to pay 20 pounds. He said, but I haven't got 20 pounds. I made that boat. It's mine. He says, I'm sorry, that's the price. So the boy goes home and he does odd jobs and he saves money and he eventually has 20 pounds. And he goes to the shop and he goes to the man. He's looked every day to make sure it's still there. And he walks in with his 20 pounds and he said, here's my 20 pounds. And the man gives him his boat. And the boy walks out of the shop with his precious boat in his hands. And he says to it, you are twice loved because I made you and I bought you. God says to each one of us, I made you and I bought you. You are twice loved. You are worth it. I promised I wouldn't use this pun, but you are, God is hesed over heels for you. Groan all you want, you know that's what you'll remember. And what a thing to remember. You are worth it. In fact, in God's eyes, you are worth a cross. That's what you're worth. You are worth a cross. Whatever you think makes you unworthy, God says, look at that cross. You are worth it. You are worth it. You are worth it. Amen. Amen. Lisa.